Thank you, Eric. Well, we're uh, in a series on Christmas from Mary's perspective during this uh, Advent season. So uh, we get to continue looking at the Gospel of Luke and a couple of different sections where we see Mary interacting with this reality that she is going to be bearing a, a child. And if you were with us when we started this two weeks ago, we began with that opening text where Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel, and she is told that she's going to be expecting a child, although she has not been with a man, that this was something God himself has done. And it's no ordinary child. This child would be the son of God, the son of the, the Most High. And her response to that, uh, fittingly, was one of uh, simple faith. But what the angel said that we focused on as we looked at that text a bit was the reality that nothing is impossible with God. There is nothing impossible with God. And the very message that we look at for Christmas makes that uh, amazing claim that God has put on flesh. But for her, this teenage girl, she recognized that that is very true for her as well. And if you didn't have a chance to listen uh, on the back end of that message to Nitya share about how after nine years of pursuing every medical option to have a child, which was the desire of their hearts, uh, and it just, it just wasn't happening, that uh, through persistent prayer, and we had the opportunity to anoint her with oil and pray and add our, our prayers to many, many other peoples, she is expecting a, a child now who will be do, uh, due in, in March. So please go back and listen to that. Uh, nothing is impossible with God. And he shows us little glimpses of that reality in space and time that we get to experience as well. And then we looked at the, the next portion of that as well. When Mary leaves after hearing this and believing that it's going to happen, she goes to her relative's house, Elizabeth. And if you recall, Elizabeth was old as well. She wanted a child, and there were a lot of tears shed as she and her husband waited for that prayer to come about, and it just didn't seem like it would happen. But uh, Zechariah, her, her husband, was told, in fact, that they would be expecting a, a child. And Elizabeth gets pregnant. When Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, last week what we saw was not only is nothing impossible with God, but there is tremendous joy simply in believing. And that belief then frames the way that we look at all of life. And there is joy, two kinds of joy we talked about. Steadfast joy, the full assurance that God is at work no matter what. That's the anchor joy. But there's also an emotional sort of joy, and we've all experienced it when something happens that we've been longing for that just comes out of you. And it's that kind of joy that stirs inside of Elizabeth when Mary uh, comes, and Elizabeth and the baby in her womb are filled with joy because they believe that who is inside Mary's womb, as we saw, is Elizabeth, according to Elizabeth, her Savior. That this little baby being shaped in the womb was the one who would come to rescue and to save her. And there's joy in that. And the joy we looked at wasn't just limited to God doing certain things. It's the joy of him. 
Consider Genesis 15.3 where God says to Abram, I am your great reward. This is the great joy of Christmas. Not only that Christ has come to save, but also that he is Christ. He is God. He is king. And that is a place of rest and joy for those who would seek to follow him. And then in this text for today, we see that there is kind of a response from Mary with these two things uh, happening that she gets to reflect a little bit that leads to a joy that's expressed in praise, in song, this thing called the Magnificat. Mary in these texts then is showing very much a picture of who God is and how we respond to him. And even in the text this morning, we see some of this interplay. But let's read this first and consider this together uh, today just a little bit from God's word. Um, from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, where we see that Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is the word of God. Father, would you give us understanding now as we consider for a few moments this, uh, this song of praise, and may it translate into our songs of praise as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we've been looking through these texts, there's an interplay here uh, between some kind of bigger concepts. And uh, the, the first one that we've seen is Mary, as she's met by this angel, uh, it, there's a sense of transcendence that happens in all these texts. That is, transcendence is something that's bigger. It's beyond us. It's, it's out, out there. Uh, it goes on in, in a way that we can't even sometimes possibly explain. But that is married together with imminence. That something is near. Something is of this earth. Something has drawn close to us as well. And these two realities have been all throughout the scriptures that we've been looking at. And it shouldn't be surprising because we see this really all throughout scripture as well. If you are familiar with the Bible, you know in Genesis chapter 1 that God created everything. I mean, God who always has been spoke with a word and made the stuff of earth. You know, the, the stuff that we breathe in and, and the grass that we see and the sun that's reflecting through here as well. And so both a God who is, is transcendent speaks into something very imminent. And in that picture of him creating things, he's walking with man. He walks in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. 
And you're familiar with what happened next probably because man who sins and falls, part of what happens is they're cast out of the garden and now this intimacy they knew with God has been broken and they can no longer, he can no longer be in their presence. And this is a real dilemma, but God promises one day he will send somebody to fix that problem. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he will send a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. But in the meantime, God in the Old Testament says, here's some pictures, some shadows of what will happen when that which is transcendent becomes fully imminent. So you have a picture of the temple and the tabernacle, and you've got the scapegoat. And those of you who are aware of the Bible know there's all these pictures looking forward to but never quite satisfying the human need to reconnect with God. And they're waiting for somebody, the Messiah, to come one day in space and time and to deal with the problem. So when you open up your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's transcendence, God and man, very different categories. Yet together, in the person of the Messiah who would come, the Son of God, both are put together. And so it's no wonder when Mary is told by Gabriel in the earlier text, I am with you. And it with you in a kind of way that hasn't been true before because she is bearing the Son of God. So the one in her room literally is the Son of God. Imminence and transcendence put together in the God-man. 100% divine, 100% human. So these texts right here are giving us some really big concepts That which is transcendent and almost, it seems, unknowable has become completely known in a baby. God made flesh. No wonder Mary says, I am blessed. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you among all women. Because the one in your womb is the Savior. Not only for everybody, but for you also. Transcendence and imminence squeezed together. Now, I've said before, and I think it's very interesting, when you look at uh, man trying to grasp, is there a God? You have different systems of belief that come from that. You know, the two of the main systems, obviously, we believe the Bible is is true. And and so we, we talk about Christ being the center and, you know, Christianity is is sort of the the way to describe that system of faith, but there's other systems of faith as well. Uh, Islam, for example, would be another way to to approach the, the idea of a God. My observation about this is that typically in most of the world religions, there's a stress on God's transcendence or God's imminence. It seems to me that, and we have some resident scholars here on Islam as well, uh, that with Islam, it's about God's transcendence. You submit to him because he is God and he is above all. And it's, it's very difficult to grasp the concept of being in relationship, intimate relationship with the God who's created everything. You just believe what he said and that's it. There's not a lot of, of dialogue there. Or growth. And on the other hand, you take something like Hinduism, which also represents 
a very large group of people who are trying to put together a system of faith. And it seems to me that maybe they've gone the opposite direction because they craft gods out of images and idols that are, you can handle them. They're maybe, I don't know if they're made in China also. But they're imaged and crafted and, and you can carry them. We have friends down the street who went back to India to buy new gods and put in their suitcase and bring back home. You know, that picture of Elijah uh, when he's saying, who is the real God here? And he says, you know, maybe your God is, is busy using the restroom right now. He's unavailable. My God is not. And so when you come to like this idea of the Christmas message in a text like this with Mary, here we have transcendence and imminence coming together in a way that is not just unique but very satisfying. What if you had a God who was only transcendent and knew nothing about what you were experiencing, was not inviting you into a dialogue, a living sort of ongoing reality? What if you had a God you could control? What if you had a God who did what you told him to do? Or if he didn't meet your demands, you went on to a new God. But this God of the Bible, you cannot control or manipulate him. But he's also not so distant and removed that he doesn't lend an ear to those who believe in him. This God who can change things and desires to do that. Because he is in relationship with us. This is all happening in, in all of these texts we've been looking at. And, and just uh, uh, consider as well not just transcendence and imminence, but eternity and present. This God who has been around forever, he was with God in the beginning, is now in Mary's womb. So it's not just that he always has been and always will be, but he is in the moment, present, Eternity is that time right now that meets the present. So this is the good news for you, that same God who Mary was believing in, the same Christ who was in her womb, who said, I am with you, is with you now, in the moment. Not just back then and not just in the future, but now, it, which was two seconds ago when I said it. But it's now, now, and he's still here. He's still with us, always, in the moment but see, he's beyond that, too. I find this very precious, that we have a God who is always has been, always will be, but is now. No wonder when Jesus comes, he says, I am. No wonder in John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And this upset people because he was saying he was God. He always has been, he always will be. Yahweh, that name from the Old Testament that was revealed to Moses, it's the to be verb, I am. He always is, and he always will be. And that is the God whom you can believe in. No wonder Elizabeth responds with joy. And no wonder when Mary begins to digest some of this and see what's happening around her, she does as well. Now, final observation, just in general from these texts we've been looking at is that we see both obedience and grace. You know, when Gabriel comes to her and says, you're highly favored, that's not because of anything that Mary did. God, in his good pleasure, said, I am choosing you, this teenage girl, to, to be the vehicle for the greatest blessing that the world has ever known. 
And you see at the same time that she responds in obedience. There is a simple faith. May it be as you have said. God has favor on Mary simply because of his good pleasure. Yet we see as well it is her pleasure to obey. That those two interact with each other. She delights in saying, okay, I will do. May it be as you have said. Obedience and grace are not at odds. They're woven together. And when all that comes together, and Mary responds then fittingly with a song, with music. I mean, that's what this is. This is a song that has been written, giving praise to God. And we know music is a powerful medium. I don't know how many of you have Spotify or, or something like that. You can look up how many times you've played a certain thing on the Spotify list. How many thousands of hours some of you have listened to music. My own observation is it tends to be the younger kids who rack up all those hours of, of listening. And it's, it'd be interesting to see. Maybe at the end of the year it starts saying, here's the report on all that you've listened to. What's that number one artist? Or the number one song that you've listened to over and over. And the thing is, I could ask that question not just in a context like this, but anywhere. Because music belongs to the sphere of culture, no matter where you happen to be. It can be very, very different. I grew up in the 80s in the United States of America. Well, generally speaking, I was overseas as well. But my, my playlist, which of course was a Walkman, at the time, and very limited, was, you know, things like In Excess and, uh, I don't know, Billy Joel, that kind of stuff as well. Uh, obviously, Michael, Michael Jackson, this guy, listened to some of that stuff as well. But if you go over to another culture, they may not be familiar with that or have their own rhythms, different timing, sets of music, but it's still, it's beautiful, it's music. See, this is common ground, common space. There's, some of you are probably familiar with this, uh, this, this individual, Makoto Fujimura. He's a, a painter and an author. He's described what we call culture war as a polarized mindset, viewing culture as territory to dominate rather than a common space Christians share with their neighbors. Rather than a zero-sum game, he invites us to a posture of culture care and generative creativity, creating and collaborating to bring beauty and healing to a broken world. That's from the most recent Christianity Today. There's an article called Defiant Joy that's on Bono. I may reference that a little bit later. But the point is, music is a common ground no matter where you happen to be. But then the question becomes, with music, if it's kind of a natural expression of what it means to be human, and especially, I would argue, all of it's a form of praise. All of it's a form of lifting something up, whether it's emotions that are high and lofty or anxious and, and depressed, even as we heard earlier. Those are all common space. We're trying to grasp something that's transcendent, that we want to be imminent. And Mary says, well, I know who that is. So there is a divergence in this common space of who or what are you worshiping? And for Mary, she says, my soul is going to glorify Lord, the Lord. Some of you might be familiar with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He talks about praise and says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. 
It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And that's what's happening here when we express praise. We're enjoying God. We're leaning into the pleasure and the goodness of who he is. And the motive and the direction of music, though it's a collective reality to mankind, is distinctive. And Mary's song is a reflexive response to what God has done. And so to just, that's, that's a lot of background, and we're not going to go super, super slow through the text. But just to kind of combine this all together, would you note with me that in verses 46 through 49, Mary gives personal praise for God's work in her life. Uh, perhaps you, you notice that. Uh, in verse 46 and 49. Just think about this again. Look, look back at it with me. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. How many times is my or me used in those verses? Yeah. My soul, my spirit, my Savior, his servant would be myself too. They'll call me blessed. He's done great things for me. So in three verses, six times, Mary is saying, my God, my Savior, me. He's done it for me. That is incredibly personal. And she knows this God is not just some concept out there, but has come close to her. And she has owned that reality. Now, I know for a lot of people, especially if you grow up in a culture that goes to church, it's pretty easy just to do this thing and to fill a pew and maybe less and less as our time and culture moves forward. But Mary is very personal about her approach to God. My Savior, my God. There's a time when Jesus, after he's born, is walking around with his disciples. He says, what do people say about me? And, and they give him a report, and he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Oh, these people had been in church every Sunday with him. They'd been living with him and walking with him. He wants to know, what do you say? I think that, that resonates even through all of time to us as well. What about you? Who do you say that I am? One of the first books that I read when I became a follower of Christ was Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's not super light reading. But I was, I, I, these were new categories for me. And I remember clearly in, in the beginning of that book, he says there's a great deal of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. This is part of what he's saying. You might know a lot about God, but do you know God? And some people talk about having a relationship with God. That's part of what is being said here. Do you know God? Can you say he is my Savior? He is my God. Look what he has done for me. This is very personal. This is very intimate. This is something that you yourself must own. And Mary certainly has. 
And it's a reflexive reality of the, the truth that she knows this God and she is glorifying the Lord. Interesting, kurios, the same word she's been using. Mary knows that she knows she needs a Savior and she's bearing that Savior. So her soul or spirit, the very inmost part of her being reflexively rejoices because she knows she does not deserve this. She's just a humble servant. And yet, God has come to her. She recognizes that reality. The mighty one's doing great things for me. I remember hearing a sermon years ago by one of my favorite. Uh, when I was in seminary, we had a lot of people come and give messages. And clearly, the one I remember the most clearly was a, a man who had been beaten up quite a bit by life. And he was a very humble individual. Um, and he spoke with tremendous passion and humility as well. I remember him talking about uh, the way that the, that the temple was crafted and how some of the intricacies were be, would be so set in such a way that nobody could really see them. It was almost as if it was something that was just between God and the individual who had constructed the temple because nobody would be able to see it. And for whatever reason, I remember him saying, so do you have those in your life as well? You know, those, those things that are precious and beautiful, but only between you and God, because nobody else has seen it, nor could you possibly express it to anybody else. I would, I would suggest to you, if you're in relationship with God in this sort of way, and your soul glorifies, you will have those things at times. And you have to remember, Mary is responding in joy, this emotional joy now. There's a lot of reasons to be excited. But she doesn't live in this song 24-7. She's about to give birth to a child. How many people are just singing praises in an emotional joy sort of way when you give birth to kids? And when they grow up and when you have more kids and they want food and they want it now. And they open up the pantry and there's no food that they want. This happened back in this day too. But there are moments and times when that's something so precious and so unique. And I'm just telling you that until you say yes to this Savior in her womb, you will not know that. But when you do, you will. And that's not my guarantee. That's God's. He's calling you distinctly and uniquely into relationship with the one who is both transcendent and imminent. The one who is eternal and present. The one who gives you his, his lavish grace so that you can know what it's like to the joy of blessing and walking in his ways. You will have those unique things. Sometimes we even share them with each other. We call them stories of grace. But they're not just for an official time. That's great. We get to celebrate together. But there are probably things that are just yours. Just precious. Certainly that's true in a sense for Mary. We get a glimpse of this. But none of us is Mary. Yet each of us God has called by name if you're his child. And he is weaving a story that is unique to you. And you can say, my God, my Savior. He's done great things for me. Now, she moves on. And she doesn't stop there. In the next verses then, she not only talks about personal praise for God's work in her life, but reflective praise for God's work in redemptive history. I mean, this is what, what she, she begins to unpack in verse 50. 
You see, she says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So she said, here's my experience right now. I want to take a moment to look back and see how God has, has been at work through all time. When we call it redemptive history, I was, I'm talking about from back in Genesis with the creation and then the fall of sin and then God begins to enact his plan of salvation. Shadows, pictures of what he's going to do coming in the person of Jesus. That is God's redemptive plan. And it's still unfolding. As we think about Advent here, we know there is real joy because Christ has come, but he will come again because we still live in that in-between time when brokenness and sorrow fills our hearts. But he came in space and time. He inaugurated or began his kingdom, and he says he will finish it. And how do we know that's true? We look back at what he's done already. The scriptures do this constantly. When you're shaking in your faith, perhaps, or even delighted in praise, you look back and say, look at how God has worked before. From generation to generation, he has shown his mercy. Not just his grace, giving us what we don't deserve, but not giving us what we do deserve. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Which one of us can stand before God? But his, gener his generational mercies have drawn a people to himself. And Mary looks back at that. From generation to generation, your mercy is there. I mean, she could list all kinds of things in verse 51. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Maybe she has Exodus in mind. We went to Genesis, now Exodus. This is the language of Exodus. God acted on behalf of his people when they could do nothing for themselves. Raised up somebody, a shadow of who would come, Moses, who led them out of slavery into freedom. That motif is all throughout the Bible, and, and certainly it would be told to her by her parents, and she says, this is what's happening now. I can find joy in praising God because not only he's at work in my life, but look what he's done in space and time. Over history, in verse 52, he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. She could probably look back and begin to see the way that God has delivered his people over all time in certainly delivering them back after exile to their home, home country in Israel. I was thinking again, and sometimes I, I say things multiple times because they stick with me myself as well, but uh, I remember in, in a book that Eugene Peterson write, wrote uh, talking about how the, the history is a footnote to the scriptures and not the other way around. Right? I mean, when you're in the moment right here, and I know for some of you who we've prayed, even for your, your country and a, a particular ruler, and it seems you can't control that, but that ruler does have a time span, a lifetime. The shelf life is going to be 100 years or so at the, at the most. Then they'll be in a book. But this God is forever. His word endures forever. He's the one who spoke things into existence. So when you feel overwhelmed with life and like it's out of control, you got to remember this God has always been and always will be. As much as it seems like 40 years of wandering in the desert, to our God, a day is like a thousand years. See, I think that's a difference maker. Even when it comes to what does it mean for me to walk by faith? 
Even if I'm saying, you are my God, but I don't understand what's going on. Don't you think Mary felt that way, as we mentioned? This was not probably her plan for life. As a teenager, I know you probably don't have many plans for life, or they'll go different anyway, but for her especially, she's pregnant, but she hasn't been with a man. What shame comes from that, especially in that culture. This is not what it was supposed to be. But she, I believe, is reminding herself that we can find joy in the fact that life isn't going according to our plan, but to God's. See, that's where this difference of faith is huge. Am I willing to believe, as a humble servant, that my life is going according to God's plan and not mine? There is freedom in that. There's freedom to be honest about where you're struggling and the pain and the heartache and the sorrow, but also to realize there's something bigger. See, transcendence as well as imminence. God's got big plans. His ways are not my ways. And he knows and understands what it's like to be confused in the midst of that. Why? Because he put on flesh. He was born. And Christ, and you know the rest of the story, on that day when to fulfill God's redemptive plan, he was going to go to the cross, said, not my will but yours be done. Sweating drops like blood, agonizing. And when his friend died, he was indignant at death. He cried. Jesus wept. So you can experience sorrow and sadness, but that's just part of God's redemptive pathway to making everything whole. And Christ is proof positive of that. And the way he sealed it was by raising from the dead. And Mary then has this baby inside of her, the one who's fulfilled all that's come before. God's sovereignty over temporary powers and the powers that seem like they're out of control. Remember that promise in Genesis 3.15? One day I will send somebody to crush the head of the serpent. The greatest enemy of all is not just Satan, but death. And Christ will take care of it. He was born as a babe in order to do that. And because of that, she says as well in verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. God provides for our basic needs. When Jesus grows up and has these disciples, he says, this is how you pray. God, give us our daily bread. When you eat and fill your stomach, that comes from God. The basic provisions of life. So you have an opportunity you're like, how do I praise God? I mean, you may not break out in song. And here's the thing. Praise can take different shapes. Some of you may feel like there's nothing that could be called praise when I open my voice and start singing. Uh, that's got to be some sort of auto-tune stuff going on to make it that way. It, it may not fill your soul in the same way, but there are other ways that you, even in the humble service, like Mary, of changing a baby's diaper, that is a praise song to God. When you're doing it because you know that everything you do is for God. No matter what it might be. I, to me, this is a radical concept that shapes the way I look at everything. I can find joy in praise no matter what. Even when I'm doing the basic stuff of life. The mundane things. It doesn't feel very divine to make a meal. But it is. You know, that's a foretaste of heaven. 
when you add those spices and flavors, or even perhaps when you just put water into the microwave with Kraft macaroni and cheese packets and eat it, and your kids are satisfied, it's still a taste of heaven. It's a picture, a small but real one, of what is to come. And also that God is providing for your basic needs now. And of course, this kind of plays out on, on the, the bigger concepts as well. Verses 54 to, to 55. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Even as he said to our father. She is remembering that this is the God who is back there speaking to Abraham. You'll be the father of many nations. You'll be blessed. And he's done that through all the generations. He's maintained his faithfulness and he's preserved that line. And somehow she is the one who is the culmination of that, expecting this child to come. Now, I think these two realities are important, two aspects of her praise, kind of correctives. There are some people, for example, who say praise ought to dismiss anything personal. Let's get rid of all the me's and the my's in a worship song. And I, I don't see that in this text. I mean, there's, there is something very personal and intimate, and there's a meanness to worship and praise. And the corrective there, too, is some people never get to that. They would prefer to keep God distant. Let's examine and keep it historical. But you're missing out. This isn't just a concept or a theory or a theological construct. This is a relationship for you. And isn't it great, again, that these two interplay just like transcendence and imminence and obedience and grace and eternity and presence, personal and reflective that's owned by the church and God's people through all time. This is a mashup of awesomeness that's going on here. No wonder it results in praise. Mary, a life has not gone exactly according to her plan, can rest in knowing it is going according to God's. And that includes not just the birth of her child, but as well as death. You know, she's a mom. She's going to struggle with this when her son is on the cross. I mean, she's, she's going to have a hard time seeing that. This is not, do you think this was her plan? First, to have a, a child out of wedlock and then to outlive her child, to see her son die. There's no parent who wants that. And so this isn't like we're just saying, just believe God without the pain. God still, this was him at work, even in the greatest sorrow and tragedy of your life, the heartache and the brokenness. Christ is still doing something. He is still at work. He is still with you. And he himself knew that reality on the cross. He knew what it meant to be forsaken from God. And still he did what he was called to do. Mary gives us a glimpse of that. Christ is the real thing. And so today, as we think about candles and joy, the steadfast emotional stuff too, find the joy in praise. Because Christ himself, the one who was in the womb, is the very Christ who's available to you. Transcendent imminent. He's here. He's in our midst. He can do something about it, and he wants to, whatever it might be. This isn't just, Christianity isn't just some concept, some theological construct, it's a person. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ, God 
saves sinners. That's the good news, and because of that, we can know joy. Whatever shape that may take for you, certainly for her, it came in the form of this song. Father, I pray for our hearts that as we just reflected some on this text, there's so much in here, that we'd be able to say, my soul glorifies the Lord. But not just my, our souls glorify the Lord. The church universal from all time, giving praise to you. We thank you that you meet our basic needs. We thank you you are a promise-keeping God from the start. We thank you that you have sovereignty over all powers, that you act in space and time, and that your mercy is not just from generation to generation past, but to us in the present. We pray, Father, you would show us that these things are true and that our praise would not just be reflective for what you've done in the past, but personal for what you're doing now in the present, for we desperately need you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes we